The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Catherine Acero talks Major Bajan, and we honor a legend at Bain Books. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirad. This week, Catherine Acero sat down to discuss her latest Major Bajan novel, The Jigsaw Assassin, with DJ Butler. The novel is a hard-boiled noir thriller with espionage elements set against the backdrop of a star empire. The novel is the fourth in Acero's Major Bajan series, which is itself a spinoff of her popular Scolian Empire series. We'll have Butler's chat with Acero in just a moment, but first, the news. Well, the news is a bit more somber today than our usual offerings here on the podcast. We're sad to report that Eric Flint has passed away at the age of 75. Eric was a force at Bain Books for decades, and he will be missed by those of us here in the office, as well as by countless readers and fans. Eric's works were listed on the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Locust Magazine's bestsellers lists, among many others. His career began when he won the Writers of the Future Award in 1993. This was followed by his first novel publication, Mother of Demons, in 1997. Over the ensuing years, he wrote and co-wrote novels in many, many memorable science fiction, fantasy, and alternate history series, including the Belisarius series with David Drake, the Heirs of Alexandria series with Dave Freer and Mercedes Lackey, the Zhao Empire series with David Carrico and Katie Wentworth, the Carey series and the Pyramid series, again with Freer, and the Boundary series with Reich E. Spore, among others. He also wrote in David Weber's Honor Harrington series, edited several anthologies and reprints of works of classic science fiction, and wrote short stories and standalone novels. But Flint will almost certainly be best remembered for the rich, sprawling alternative history series, The Ring of Fire. Beginning with 1632, Flint and an army of co-authors have chronicled what happened when the small, late 20th century mining town of Grantville, West Virginia, and its inhabitants are transported through space and time to 17th century Europe. The series has gone on to become the best-selling alternative history series of all time, with dozens of novels, short stories, novellas, and more being published by Bain Books, as well as Ring of Fire Press. But in addition to the works he leaves behind, Eric Flint also leaves a legacy of generosity to his fellow writers in the field and his readers. He famously opened up the Ring of Fire series to other writers, allowing them to play in his sandbox, thereby giving untested authors the ability to have their work seen. Eric lifted others up, co-authoring books with them and mentoring them as they grow into professionals. Further, Eric was an advocate for readers. With Jim Bain, he founded the Bain Free Library, where authors offered up selected novels free of charge. In fact, Mother of Demons was the first novel in the Bain Free Library, and it is still available today. 
because of his immense talents as a storyteller and his generosity towards so many in the field, Eric Flint will be deeply missed. We'll be honoring him here on the podcast over the next two weeks. Next week, we'll have sort of a best of selections of his appearances previously on the podcast. And the week after that, we'll bring you a roundtable discussion with some of Eric's close associates and friends. So please join us in the coming weeks as we continue to honor and remember Eric Flint. And that's it for the news. Hello and welcome. This is DJ Butler. I am here with Catherine Asaro to talk about her new novel, The Jigsaw Assassin. Uh, it's out now in, uh, oh, actually, I didn't check this. It's hardcover. Am I right? Or is it, uh, Matt, is it trade paperback? Trade paperback. Trade paperback. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, as well as, of course, all of your favorite ebook formats, DRM free when you buy them at bain.com, uh, as, as always. Uh, Catherine Asaro is an author of science fiction, fantasy, and thrillers, and has written over 25 novels, as well as short stories and nonfiction. Her acclaimed Ruby Dynasty series combines adventure, hard science, math, romance, and fast-paced action. In fact, am I, uh, let me detour from the biography, uh, Catherine, but I think the Major Bajan stories are sort of a spin-off of the Ruby Dynasty, or part of it, yes. aren't they? That's right. They're earlier in the, the universe. Okay, very good. Um, among her numerous distinctions, she has won the Nebula and Analog Reader's Choice Awards. Uh, Catherine earned her doctorate in theoretical chemical physics. Wow, from Harvard. Uh, she has coached numerous math teams, in particular the Howard Area Homeschoolers and Chesapeake ARML program. ARML, I'm reading it. Right, yeah? American Arm. Regions Mathematics. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Her students have won top honors in many competitions, including the USA Mathematical Olympiad and the USA Mathematical Talent Search. She is currently a visiting professor at the physics department at UMBC. Is that true? This might be a little dated. Oh, no, that's an old bio. I'm, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's okay. But you have been. I'm retired before. from teaching mostly now. Oh, that sounds very nice. Um, Catherine is also a dancer and musician. This is something that uh, caught my eye about you, Catherine. Uh, her first CD, Diamond Star, is the soundtrack for her novel of the same name, cut with the band Point Valid. She cut the CD Goodbye Note with jazz musician Donald Wolcott and is currently, this is probably also dated, working on a third CD for another book. Is that one out? That must be. Well, there's a song out from it called Ancient Ages. It's on YouTube. Oh, and it okay. was written by another science fiction author, Arlen Andrews. But I only have that one song. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, she can be reached at facebook.com uh, forward slash Catherine dot uh, Azaro. Uh, Catherine, welcome. Welcome very much to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Hello. Um, hello. Uh, thrilled to have you. I, now I have to tell you probably already obvious but uh so i just i read the jigsaw assassin this week which is a lot of fun um okay. it is my first yeah it's my first uh major bajan novel but it's also my first novel and uh of yours in the setting which you have you must have 18 or 19 or more novels out in that's the, right and novellas yeah and okay um so uh so so i so some of what i will 
ask is kind of from that point of view, hey, from a new reader's point of view, tell us about some oh, of that. Oh, that's perfect. It's meant to be a standalone novel. So you're supposed to be able to read it without having read any of my other books. And, and that's certainly how I enjoyed it. We had uh, recurring uh, characters from previous stories, but they all came introduced uh, and uh, where uh, the backstory seems to have been part of the previous novels. It was, it was uh, pretty clear what had happened. So yeah, I, I, I'd never felt baffled or anything. Good. Um, tell us about Major Bajan. She's, in, she's interesting and she's formidable. Yes, yeah, she is. She grew up in the Undercity, which is essentially a slum under one of the most spectacular cities of this interstellar civilization. It's a city, it's called the City of Cries. Later they renamed it because they wanted to make it more attractive to tourism. <laughs> but in her time, in her age, it's called the City of Cries. And it's very wealthy. It's on a planet that's dying where the terraforming failed. But because the people who live in that city are so wealthy, they're managing to at least keep that part of the planet livable, just barely livable for humans. So, you know, their city's beautiful, but she grew up in the slum underneath the city. And there's very little, you know, interaction between the two. Um, she was part of a gang. She helped protect a whole circle of people. But she decided as a teenager to enlist, partially because, you know, the, the military appealed to her, but also because it was a way out of her circumstances. I mean, I, when I was a kid growing up, I had friends who did that, you know, who enlisted as a way out of, you know, poverty, that kind of thing. So that's what she did. Uh, because she comes from this undercity, you know, they've become you know, they're not very well thought of. So there is a lot of prejudice against her when she went into the military, but she's really smart and she's very good at problem solving. That's her forte. So eventually she worked her way up from the enlisted ranks into the officer ranks, which is even more difficult to do in the Skolian Empire <laughs> civilization than it is in real life. So she really had to, she had a lot to overcome, but she did because she's ornery. <laughs> That's her superpower. She's as stubborn as all the get-go. And so she did it. She did it. And she was in the military for 20 years, and then she retired and became a private investigator. And that's what these mysteries are. They're about the cases she's solving. Yeah. So she's ornery. She's a problem solver. Um, the, uh, she still encounters, right? So this, this novel is set on a uh, very wealthy planet a very wealthy yes. city is very yes. different from where she's from and she she sees the difference but also people expect uh it, it, well they have low expectations of her right they they're yeah, surprised exactly. um when she's competent basically she's very good at what she does and usually she doesn't talk about her background you know she's kind of um yeah. reserved yeah. but Somebody keeps releasing information about her, trying to mess up her investigation. And so it comes yeah. out and people make a big deal about the fact that she's from the undercity so that it'll make her investigation more difficult because people may not, some people may not take her as seriously. I mean, it's like our civilization, you know, there's stereotypes about various classes of people and yeah. some others take them seriously and some don't. And that's pretty much what she encounters. 
but she makes it work to her advantage because for those who underestimate her, you yeah. know, she's able to do things that if they were more prepared, that she wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, it's to their to their to their peril. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, a good way to put it. <laughs> I uh, so it's she's from an arid. There's a, there's this fun little uh, charming little moment. Uh, it's um, the the planet where the city of cries is in the undercity is is a desert planet, right? It's an yes. arid arid world. Exactly. Um, and there's this delightful moment. She brings two um, friends from the undercity or, or yeah they're her pro her proteges yeah she's their their martial arts instructor and they're her top students and there's more and more as the books progress they're working with her on these cases yeah which but they're not very polished <laughs> well yes so the, the delightful scene i wanted to point out right is uh um so it's angel and ruzik right uh, yeah an angel is anything but <laughs> Angel very much has, yeah, she's, she, she comes across, Ruzik has the ability to speak in flag, which is sort of speak proper English, right? That's the equivalent of what we would say. They speak a dialect in the undercity. It's a very terse dialect, not yeah. many words. If you yeah. use a word with three or more syllables, you're insulting somebody or yeah. making fun of them. Yeah, very efficient. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so they they kind of come into the into the case. She she you know summons them. Uh, there's a scene early on where Angel has been working, and I can't remember what she's she's clearing rubble or doing EMT kind of work, right? Yes. And, yeah. and she's having a drink of water, and she says something like, "You know, this is a fair trade water for the work." Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> yeah. her expectation, yeah, about the it's value. True. Because, you know, on this planet where they live, there's very little drinkable water. It has to be filtered or it'll poison you. And living underground the way they do, all the water they have access to is poison. So they have to steal filters in order to survive. Yeah. So she comes, she and Rosa come to this planet and people just give out bottles of water like it's nothing. To them, this is a great riches. Right. At yeah. first, till they, they start to figure out what's going on. Right. Right. And also some of their first responses, well, is this poison? Can I get <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so, okay. So let's talk to, about them a little bit. So, yeah. So one of the things that, that major Bajan has done is set up a sort of a dojo, but uh, in the undercity. Right. Yes, um, yeah. And the uh, dust nights. the dust nights. Yeah. Because it's, it's sort of, um, in that great tradition of kind of like, uh, you know, martial arts being more than about fighting. Right? Exactly. Having an ethos. exactly. So tell me, tell us about the Dust Knights and, and why, what they, what they do or believe and, and why uh, Baj has set them up that way. Well, you know, it started in the first book. She came back to the Undercity after she'd been away for a long time because she had a case that she was brought in by the most powerful people on the planet that you don't say no to them. You know? <laughs> so she came in and, you know, some people didn't recognize her. So they tried to jump her when she was down in the Undercity. And of course, she quickly dispatched them. She's not only she's trained in martial arts. You know, she grew up as a child learning to fight in the Undercity. And of course, street fighting and martial arts are very different, but she took to martial arts very well in the 
the army and eventually became a black belt. And by the time of this book, she's a six degree black belt working on toward her seventh degree, which is very rare, you know, on our planet or anywhere else. <laughs> so, you know, these kids see her fighting and she's, you know, down in this cave, you know, working and thinking and this child shows up, this young, you know, like, I don't know, nine, 10, and wants her to show her some moves. So, you know, she, she shows her a few moves and gives her a bottle of water. And then she forgets about it. But then they start showing up more and more, more and more kids show up. And then older ones start to show up. And it, because in the undercity, there's no school. There's no, not even, a lot of people's parents haven't even survived. So they've survived by protecting their territory. They form gangs. The gangs protect a circle of people like an extended family, even though they're not most of the time, they're not related. And they learn how to fight. So they all want her to teach them how to fight. And she realizes the dust knights can be a lot more than just, you know, a little group that she's teaching moves to. You know, the whole philosophy of violence only when it's needed, she thinks, will help in the undercity because it's such a violent culture down there. And she wants to give these kids something to feel proud about, something to make them feel better about themselves, which often sports does, you know, for, for groups that don't have an outlet. I mean, I was a dancer when I was in, in high school and it really gave me an outlet. Mm. So she's hoping the whole philosophy will, she's trying to give back to build up the culture that she came from because she's now very successful. So that's how they start. And over the books, they gradually evolve. They're getting older, they're starting to make connections. That's how the first connections, you know, civil, <laughs> the first civil connections between the undercity and the, the above city start are at tournaments, sports tournaments. Sports is a universal uh, language in itself. And they come to respect, the two groups come to respect each other more as they go through these sports tournaments. So by the time this book, you know, a lot of these kids are now adults, like the two that she's working with who are top students. And they just got their first degree black belt. So they're a little cocky, you know. <laughs> but that's, that's where the dust nights. And she has a premonition at the end of the first book Mm. that someday the dust nights will be a lot more. She calls them dust nights for a very important reason. Mm -hmm. There is a slang for people like her from where she comes from. They call them dust rats because it's dusty under the, in the, the ruins where they live in under the city. And it's an insult, but they called that. She even called herself that in the first book. And then when these kids start showing up and they, they, call themselves dust rats. She said, no, don't call yourself that. You are not dust rats. You're not rats, you're humans. And so they look at her like, well, then what do we call ourselves? And that's when she comes up with dust night sort of on the spur of the moment because it has a more noble sound to it. Mm -hmm. And someday, I mean, by the time in the book of mine, it's the latest in the chronology, lightning strike books one and two, the dust nights are an interstellar, you know, interstellar respected, you know, elite group of fighters known all across the, the interesting. Yeah, but that's not in these books. <laughs> yeah. So this is we're we're in the prequels here. We're we're back in the yes, roots. That's right. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting idea, right? Because it's um 
Uh, it's an idea that builds on what is instinctive for them and what they're already doing, right? Yes, it is, it is good to protect. Right? Yeah, that's, they consider themselves protectors, you know, right. but she wants them to also learn a philosophy of, you know, there are other ways besides violence. Right. So, we have, so you know, we take what you have and what you do and say, well, we need to add to it elements of restraint and a code yeah. and altruism. And, and, and then, that's, so that's a, lovely, uh, that's a lovely idea. Well, you know, I saw it when I was in high, high school and I had friends who went on in sports. You know, I went to a high school that was, you know, the classic urban inner city high school. Mm. I never made the connection between under city and inner city till I was actually helping write the Wikipedia page for my high school. And I went, oh my God, is that coincidence? <laughs> you know, is that where that came from? <laughs> I don't like those words. I don't like the words inner city or urban because, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes that go with it. You know, like none of us will succeed when we graduate. You know, I have a doctorate from Harvard, so it's a, it's a stereotype. It's not true. Mm. But, you know, I saw what sports did for a lot of my friends. It gave them something. For some of them, it gave them a way out. But for a lot of them, it gave them a type of community. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so, okay. So we're still talking about Baj though. So, so there is kind of an aspect of her where she's a little bit kind of Mr. Miyagi, right? So there, she, she has a kind of a, she has a kind of a dojo. She has a following two of them, two of them come, um, and, and participate in, in, in this case. Uh, she's, uh, she's also, uh, physically, this is true of a lot of people in this setting. She's physically altered. Right. She has yes. uh, yes. cybernetic uh, and other kinds of enhancements. So uh, maybe tell us about that. Yeah, it's an extension of what that we're already doing, not just the military, but, you mm. know, in general, you know. It used to be that you had what you had at, at biologically, but then we started getting things like pacemakers and artificial limbs. And, you know, there's always been artificial limbs, but now they're smart. And they can interact with your neural system. Yep. And it gets more advanced all the time to the point where we're already augmenting our body. So I thought, okay, let's extend this into the future, right? It's science fiction. What if? And I figured, you know, they would be able to, like, she wears gauntlets with an art and an evolving intelligent, which is more adept and, and evolves more than an artificial intelligence. In my book, the artificial intelligences are like not that smart <laughs> they're as's instead of ai <laughs> artificial stupidity artificial stupidity <laughs> that is it they're not smart but the evolving intent intelligence is intelligences are smart she's got one that she's been evolving with that she wears in these gauntlets Max. for 10 15 years and she's also got a system of threads bio threads in her body that go to to bioelectrodes in her brain that can fire as if, you know, and create thoughts. So she can communicate with this EI either out loud, you know, if there's no one around or via, you know, this neural system in, in her body. It's essentially tech induced telepathy, you might call it, no. but it's actually technological in origin. And that's already, we're already starting to do that in real life. I mean, when I first proposed this, you know, back 20 years ago with my books, people were like, no, no, nobody's going to do that. <laughs> huh. And now those kind of chips exist, you know, paraplegics use them to interact with, you know, technology, that sort of thing. 
So this is just an extension of that idea. And of course, the military would use it to make them better soldiers. That's where she initially got her system was in the army. Yeah. So she's got for at least so she's got a certain amount of to some of these systems, some ruggedness, some resilience, some, you know, Yeah, she's faster. It enhances her reflexes. It enhances her skeletal structure. She's got biohydraulics uh, in her system. She yeah. has to have an energy source. She actually has a microfusion reaction in her body, mm. which that was really what people totally know. No one will ever want to carry that in their body. And I said, well, you know, if it could give you, you can't just get superpowers right there has to be an energy source for all those powers like in the marvel universe right people say it's not science fiction because it's not plausible scientifically i mean it's a lot of fun so who cares right but i wanted to make it plausible scientifically so no. not only does she have all this stuff in her body but she has to have protections you know she needs protections with the bioelectrodes so they don't damage your brain that kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. So, so there's a scene, uh, I mean, some of these pieces all play together. There's a scene where a, a building is collapsed and, and, and they're, they're going to pull someone out. They can't quite get there. And she basically lifts up the, I think it's the sort of the fallen girder or whatever it is. So they can pull this person out. So this is yeah. superhuman feat of strength. And then her EI in the gauntlet, Max, is communicating to her about, you, you know, you've got about 10 seconds of this and then yeah. it's going to actually, you know, break your spine anyway. Uh, yeah. And uh, and and so those combined tools let her let her save this uh, person. Yeah, it uh, turns out it's a good thing she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won't say why. <laughs> yeah. So okay, so EIs, yeah, EIs rather than AIs, evolving intelligences. Max, Max is fun. There's this interesting line. So Max is the EI in her gauntlet. Yeah. That's um, right. And he's he's Max is in touch with all kinds of other EIs. Max also sort of oversees some insect-sized drones that yeah, are yeah. kind of like do some of the investigatory legwork, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Max is fun. There's this kind of line that Max walks um, uh, on the question of whether Max is becoming more human-like, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know... There was in old science fiction, we used to tend to have this dividing line between logic and emotion, which I even back then I thought that was contrived. And I think now, you know, most of the research in psychology says, yeah, it's contrived. There isn't really a dividing line. Where do you, you know, if an evolving intelligence evolves with your personality, to the point where you can't tell if its emotions are real or simulated. I mean, does it matter? And at one point he says, I'm being logical because I'm an EI. And she says, no, if that's not necessarily logical. If you thought it made logical sense to simulate emotions, you would do it. Right. <laughs> so the fact that you say something doesn't automatically mean it's the most logical statement. You're saying what you think will achieve what you want to achieve. And if that includes emotion, and, and she has to come to terms with that too. He's become almost the second part of her brain. And she's not quite ready to accept that. <laughs> yeah. And so he's he's uh he's a little bit in denial about having anything like a non-logical component. He even jokes about it, right? There's a yeah. when she gets kidnapped, he he has this uh, he's basically a witness to the kidnapping, even though she's drugged. 
uh, and he talks about, I forget, one of the kidnappers hurts herself in the process or something. And, and he cracks his, he says something like, you know, if I, uh, uh, if I were not an EI, I would have taken, I would have been amused at the <laughs> fact that you got hurt or something, right? And you're like, yeah, that's right. okay, yeah. so you're, so you weren't amused? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's one of the f- kind of fun ongoing bits of bits of banter, but it also gets at this larger. Well, maybe maybe we'll come back to kind of larger. There's 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 a you know there's a lot going on here about kind of intelligence and the evolution of intelligence. Yeah, because we're on the cutting edge of you know where do you draw the line between what's human biologically and what we're becoming? You know, it's reached the point where we're starting to evolve ourselves, you know, with all this, this uh, digital world, the electronic world, we're at the very frontier. And if you extrapolate that into the future, you know, we're gonna be evolving with our intelligence, intelligences, the ones we create. And this is all about how they interact. And, you know, there's some stereotypes about, oh, if you create intelligence, they'll figure out that humans are less than they are and destroy us. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, that's so blunt. That's so simplified. You know, if they evolve along with us, you, we won't even be able to, to make a line between where they stop and we start. And, you know, I don't really believe human beings would settle for being second-class citizens to technological creations. I think we're going to evolve with them. We're going to make them part of ourselves. I mean, we're already doing it. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Okay, let's co- let's come back to this a little bit, because that has a lot to do with kind of the big story. And I don't want to, I, yeah. much, I don't want to <laughs> give too much away, but we'll come yeah. back to a little bit. But... Um, Okay, so this is uh, before your saga of the Scolian Empire, um, and we've got uh, we're we're in galactic civilization. We've already had empires rise and fall, and you've got sort of, as I read it, kind of three uh, three big interstellar human groups. There's the Imperialate. Uh, yeah. and then there are the traitors who I think yeah. are politically independent, right? Oh yeah. yeah. And then they're, they're probably the biggest and the strongest civilization. Uh, and, 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 uh, yeah. And maybe, yeah. And in some ways, maybe very unlikable, uh, very. And, yeah. uh, and then earth, right? Earth is earth yeah. or the, the, you know, maybe there's a core of other worlds around earth. Yeah. Um, Tell, tell us about the differences among the three of those and maybe a little bit of the history, which, which gets us to where okay. the story starts. Yeah, the, the people were taken from Earth, you know, thousands of years ago and stranded on this planet, Raylacon. And they don't know why, you know, who did this? Why did they do it gradually over the major Bajan books in the background? And they're figuring out what happened. But this was thousands of years ago. And whoever took them disappeared. You don't know why until I think it's the third major Bajan book where they finally start figuring that out. But they left behind the ruins of their spaceships, the ones they used. So the humans know it's possible to do this. You know, they know it's possible to travel because they experienced it. I mean, to do interstellar travel. But of course, you know, they were um, on the level of the Maya civilizations a thousand years ago. They've shifted in time because of some 
relativistic things. So what's been 6,000 years for them has actually been 1,000 years on, um, on Earth. They went through Riemann, they went through branch cuts and Riemann surfaces. If you know math, that'll make more sense. Okay. Um, so they eventually, over the centuries, learned from these, because the Mayans were actually pretty advanced. They had advanced mathematics, you know, before their civilization fell. In my, in my universe, it fell because these people came and took a lot of them away. But, um, you know, they slowly develop star travel and go to looking for Earth, right? Because they have all these myths of Earth from centuries ago. They never find it, but they built this very shaky interstellar civilization. It's shaky because they don't really understand the technology that kind of scavenged it from these, these starships, which are partially destroyed, so they couldn't get everything. And eventually it falls. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't secure enough. And over the next few millennia, they develop on their own and they get a much more secure and more like our understanding of science. So finally, they, um, they make it to interstellar space again, and they split into two groups, one which is much more belligerent and bellicose than the other. That's the traitors. They, th they call themselves, well, the Scolians call them traitors because that's their economy is based on the sale of human beings, which the Scolians find appalling. <laughs> and they essentially own, you know, several trillion people. Because by then, you know, there's trillions of people spread across the galaxy. Um, they don't, you can't, the Ristos are in charge. There's a few thousand of them. You can't control that many people unless you give them reasonably good lives, but they're still not free. And the Ristos want to take over everything, everybody. And the Scolians or Barges people don't want to be taken over. <laughs> and the Ristos, they'll do anything. They'll commit genocide if people, you know, threaten to result. A revolt. So that's what Baj and the army was fighting to protect the, her people, the Scolians, which is a smaller, they're a little bit smaller than the traders. They stand against them because they have technological advantages the traders don't have. And they are managing to keep that. So it's always a fight to, you know, to keep their technological edge. Then finally, here's these two huge bellicose empires going at each other. Finally, Earth figures out interstellar travel. It takes them longer because they don't believe it's possible, right? Because Einstein said, you know, yeah. there are ways, if you know relativistic physics, there are ways to postulate mathematically how you could get around those problems. But, you know, it's very complex. So anyway, and it's, it's all fiction. I should make that clear. It's all fictional extrapolations. It's, it's speculative, though. There's, you know, yeah. science fiction writers can guess right. Well, I did have a paper in the American Journal of Physics about the technique I use, but they said, make sure you say this is a thought problem, a thought game. <laughs> you know, so people don't think one of the most prestigious journals is claiming go faster than speed of light. Yeah. So I did that. But you know, then Earth finally shows up, and there's, you know, they they have. Earth and a few planets. They're the, you know, the, the uh, allied planets of Earth. And they find there are these two huge empires of human beings out there that have been there for millennia and they're fighting each other. It's quite a shock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they just stay out of the way because they're much weaker. But the Scolians and the traitors are so busy fighting each other that, you know, they don't, neither of them attacks Earth. Yeah. Plus, 
Earth has a cachet. They're the mythological planet that everybody was looking for. They're the home. They're, you know, all these people out there fighting are the lost children of Earth. So that kind of helps protect Earth against them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're in the Scolians, and they call themselves the Imperialate because they're the successors of an empire. And they're not an yeah. empire, but they kind of they they yeah. don't disavow the empire. They don't hate the empire. They they kind of aspire to be what the empire was, maybe a little bit. Yeah, it's they actually are elected, at least at this point in in the, the chronology. They have an elect mostly elected government. Um, in order to convince the royalty to give that to them, they had to make some concessions. The royal family does have, you know, a substantial voting block, but not by any means even close to a majority in the ruling assembly. It is primarily, you know, 90% elected. Um, but it's a constant state of tension because people have great reverence for the royal family. And they're also very important. They're one of the reasons genetically why their empire has this edge over the traders. You know, they have an ability to access certain, you know, of the ancient machines. You know, they were bred for that in the ancient empire and they still, you know, retain that ability that without it, their empire would probably fall to the traders. So it's this, you know, the empire knows they need them, but, and so they said to people, well, you want to keep calling this imperial aid? That implies we're like an empire. We're not. We're a democratic society. And so the people voted to keep using the name. <laughs> <laughs> they voted democratically to call themselves a non-democratic. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, okay. So there are, uh, so uh, actually one more, one more question kind of, uh, and this building on something you said, uh kyle space kyle space so there's there's a there's a non-relativistic thing that relates to communications but also relates to relates to computation and i think also to travel right space travel well not exactly yeah so tell me okay kyle space is relating to the computer system okay i you know my big thing is as a mathematical physicist an applied mathematician and i love the equations of you know, I especially loved Hilbert space and eigenfunctions. I know this is probably going to bore some people, so I won't spend too long. But there's an aspect of quantum theory, which is what I studied, that involves things called Hilbert spaces and eigenfunctions and all the beautiful machinery of mathematical physics. And I thought, well, I'm going to play around a little bit here. What To put it in a way that might make more sense, when you do a Fourier transform, if you're an electrical engineer, you can transform from something that depends on the frequency of whatever you're looking at to something that depends on the time. Well, I said, what if you could do that to the quantum wave function that described what goes on in your head? You know, there is a, in quantum mechanics, we don't have the computing power to do this, but you could actually calculate a wave function that would be a picture, a, a description, the actuality of what ha is happening to the atoms and molecules in your brain as you think. I thought, well, what if, what if you could transform from a space that depends on your position while you're having thoughts, just like you can transform from a space that depends on the frequency of a specific frequency of say a radio or some transmission over time, you can trans 
form from that with Fourier transform to a space that depends on the various frequencies contributing at a sp specific time. I thought, what if you could do that with this wave function, this quantum wave function that describes what you're thinking? Transform from a space where you stand one place and have your thoughts, so your thoughts change, your position stays the same, to a space where you have one thought and it doesn't matter where your position is, your position is, can be anywhere. And I, I applied the whole mathematical machinery of Hilbert space <laughs> that idea. <laughs> I was like, it was a what if, but I, I love math. So I just said, okay, what would happen? And what was interesting, I'm not going to go into the math, but the result was if you were in that space, which I call Kyle space, you know, the closer you are in that space is not determined by your actual physical position. It's determined by what you're thinking. So if, if you're thinking two things that are very similar, like if you're having a conversation like you and me, then you're close together in that space. And it's not governed by the laws of physics that go in our space. It's governed by different laws determined by all these equations. So it, it's sort of like a physical description of the various devices people have used in science fiction to get around speed of light problems. Like I think Ursula Le Guin called it the ansible. Mm -hmm. You know, right. it could get around the speed of light problems. Well, this is an actual mathematical way that that could work. So mm -hmm. that's where they access Kyle space. They, they neurologically connect into it. They, you know, connect their brain to, and they transfer into the space and they built a network there. The only ones who are strong enough to build the network are the royal family. That's why they're so important mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of mental power and they were bred for that. Mm -hmm. So, but if you do that, and you get people who have, you know, that neurological aptitude to connect to the space, they can connect with other people no matter where they are, because it's your thoughts, not your position that matters. And it gets around the problems with the speed of light. Yeah. So that's how, you know, and it's huge. I mean, that's huge. You can't have an interstellar civilization if you, if it takes hundreds of years to communicate or get to other plant to various places. Yeah, it's a really big problem. Yeah, and you can't have a, a military that can protect you if, they, you know, if it takes hundreds of years to send commands, right? right. So yeah, that's yeah. the edge. You know, the traitors steal time on this network so they can fight them, but that's the edge the Scullians have. Yeah, interesting. And so you have, you have uh, uh, they're called telops, right? Oper like it's an operator who basically connects you with somebody else yeah. through yeah. the Kyle network or the Kyle, Kyle space network. And I guess- yeah. You, you probably have to, you have to both be sensitive or able to access the network, but there's a, it's almost like old time telephone, right? Where you pick it up and say, I want to talk to, yeah, or something. Uh, See, you and I remember that. Kids wouldn't know what we're talking about. <laughs> no, no, or yeah, even, even my kids don't even know like the whole phone on the wall. Oh yeah, my phone. Yeah. <laughs> As a curly cord that goes into the wall, that's that's caveman times. That's uh, For anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, it used to be you couldn't just call someone up. You called the operator, an operator in a place who, who would physically pull things out of one place and yep. put them into another to connect you to your. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. And so, okay, so that so that idea. Uh, 
So, okay, so it's not faster than light travel, but but that's part that like they, some of the, the EIs use Kyle space to do computation too, right? Yeah, the thing about faster than light travel, that's the one I had the paper about in the American Journal of Physics. There's a way to circumvent all the problems with the speed of light and they all go away. And you can do it with Einstein, the simpler version of Einstein's theory. You can do it with the more complicated too, but I mean, a student who's a first or second year physics students could figure it out. I know because I made them. <laughs> when I was teaching physics, I made it a problem on a physics test. <laughs> but um, basically, you have to make your speed a complex number, which doesn't, it's a mathematical game, right? Because speed is not a complex number. I don't know if you remember complex numbers, a square root of negative one. Yeah, I. And all of physics uses complex numbers. I mean, everything, you know, not just quantum mechanics, which uses it extensively, but, you know, almost anything, transmission of signals, you know, uh, refractive index, you know, almost every branch of physics uses complex numbers. It's just when it comes time to measure, you have to reduce all this machinery of physics to an actual real number that you can measure in the lab. And what I suggested was, well, if you make speed a complex number, so it has both a real and imaginary part, and put it into equations, all the problems go away. It's no longer infinite. It's the speed of light as long as it, that complex part exists. Of course, the problem is there's no such thing. That's <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> the American Journal of Physics, it's a peer-reviewed paper. So the reviewers said, well, this is a very cute mathematical problem, you know, <laughs> it, it would be entertaining for, you know, your readers, but, uh, you know, it's math, it's not physics. So I added a whole, you know, literature review of, of the tachyon uh, research. Tachyons are faster than light particles, which all those papers appeared in the American Journal of Physics. So, you know, they were okay with that. Yeah. Uh... Well, that's, that's still, that's a pretty, even if they were just Gedanken experiments, that's a pretty fancy yeah. pedigree for a science fiction novel to have some of these uh, publications behind it. Well, you know how it was published? My first, you know, I was sort of writing it and then I forgot and then I go back to writing it. And then my editor said, we're going to publish your first book, Primary Inversion. And inversion referred to the process of inverting. One of the meanings of that title was the process of inverting from real space into this complex space. Mm -hmm. And he said, is that paper published? And I said, oh, no, I kind of forgot about it. And he said, get it done. <laughs> get it done now because marketing <laughs> wants to use it. That's awesome. I'm probably the first person to have a paper published in the American Journal of Physics because marketing wanted me to get it done. <laughs> Want it done to market your science fiction novel. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's I'm glad I did it. It's gotten, it actually gets quite a few um, references, you know, from people doing research yeah. in that area. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, all right. So we we're we're almost to the story here. So, uh, uh, but we, yeah, we don't we don't go too much in the story because it's a mystery. That's but right. um, so in the imperialists, yep. the Scolians, they have five political factions, and this matters a lot <laughs> for this story, right? For this one, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and just as like a setup for why this matters, uh, uh, Bosch is hired by you know, again, kind of royalist aristocratic patrons um, to solve murders. And it's basically a series of university academics have been murdered all kind of mysteriously, right? Like, yeah. like strange 
strange crime scenes. Yeah. Um, that don't make sense. That don't make sense. Like and, sort of like closed door crime. Like how did we didn't see anyone go in? How no one got out? You know, right. where did the bullet come from? Yeah. Right. Or or in fact, the projectiles are missing. Right. There's like a hole, and there's no yeah, no projectile. No, there's no hole either. There's no. Oh right. Okay. And you can't uh, figure it out. These people were shot, but yeah. So they think they bring her. So they bring her in. Um, and and there are notes, right? There are notes claiming responsibility, and it's notes that purport to be. Uh, let's see, there is it royalist? Is it notes? Yeah, to, the royalist party. Yeah, so someone's killing scientists. Obviously, this is a good PI novel. So the, those someone start coming after Baj and her crew pretty early. Yes. Yes. Um, there's this question, you know, it looks up front like it's a like it's murders designed to upset uh, the political status quo, right? Or to 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 maybe discredit a political rival. Yeah, at first, supposedly the royalists claim credit for it. Yeah, and they say they're killing technologists, which doesn't make sense. I mean, Bosch says it doesn't make sense because the ties between the technologists and the royalists are very strong. The royalists go with whichever party they think will make them the most powerful, right? So they go with the technologists. Yeah. And it just keeps these red herrings keep coming up and she keeps shooting them down and more of them come out, more of them, she shoots more of them down and it just never stops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we get into, as layers of the onion kind of peel back, we get into other kind of stories around the EIs, right? And I don't, I don't want to go too far down uh, the road here because it's mysteries, but like there's a sort of, uh, I don't know if malevolence is the right word, but in a previous book, we had an, an, AI, an EI called Oblivion. Which... Yeah, that was another case that she did. Yep. And that's her experiences with these big, powerful, ancient EIs. It's really, she's in, interacted with three of them. Oblivion was not created by humans and it, it's she thinks of it as malevolent but you could argue that it's just doesn't care you know I mean it's not anything it just wants to get rid of humans because they it it's not even the humans it's the AIs and EIs it creates that it wants to get rid of because it thinks it's they're messing up it's you know how it wants galaxy to be yeah. So, you know, and if the humans get killed as a side effect of that, well, you know, it doesn't care. You know, it's this ancient alien AI that doesn't really have an analog with the human ones. And she had to fight it in a previous yeah. book and, and she had to help defeat it. So, yeah. you know, that's her experience with these ancient AIs. I don't want to say more than that. Yeah. And it, yeah. And at one point, it looks like maybe we've got something else similar happening here. Could be. Could but be. there's a lot of red herrings with that. Yeah. <laughs> we also get into space where there's like these kind of potentially kind of baby EIs that seem to be out on their own trying to figure out the world. Well, who knows? From. Yeah, I don't want to say anything. All right. All right. <laughs> so, so uh, okay. So, uh, look, this is a fun adventure novel, you know, like a PA, like it, like watching Chinatown or something, you know, your, your, your PI is getting beat up and kidnapped and, and fighting and people and uh, like there's an action story and as well as a mystery here. Um, is there anything else we haven't touched on that you would like to say about the novel? Here? Um, you don't have to have read my other novels to read it. It's meant to be standalone and it's meant to be fun. You know, it, well, you know, fun. It's meant to be an enjoyable read. 
Any, um, and I should have asked the question before, so I would know the answer, but are there sequels or other books in the setting in the works or what, what other projects are you working um, on? Well, yeah, actually that's, it's Bain just bought three more books from me. That's in the works anyway. I think, you know, my agent is doing the contract stuff, but they would be actually, they'd still have major Bajan in them, but they're actually focusing on the dust nights more as the dust nights come into their own. So the first one is kind of the transition from the major Bajan books are told first person from her point of view. So I haven't decided if this new one will be told first person from her point of view, or I'll start to incorporate the points of view of the Dust Knights in it too. Very cool. So we'll have to see. Also, the thing that this book allowed me to bring up was the fact that Baj was very good. There's this thing where they always run in the undercity all the time. Yeah. Because, because they live in these ancient ruins, they can't risk damaging them. So they don't have a lot of mechanized transportation. They couldn't afford it anyway. But they just run everywhere. And it's a, a small enough place. I mean, it's very large. It, it incorporates this huge area underground, but it's still, you can run places. So they do that all their life. They become very good at running. So when she goes into the army, it turns out she's really gifted at the marathon. And I was able to explore that a little bit more, you know, like what she actually did with it and what she gave up to. You know, she she could have been a gold medalist, you know, and, and she gave that up to be in the military. But she did. She did get a silver medal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And also let me play with they brought the Olympics from Earth. You know, they had the Scolian, the Imperialate Games and they had the, the games of their enemies and they wanted to combine it because like sports is kind of this universal thing. The same way we do the Olympics with, you know, countries that we don't like very much. But they didn't know what to name it because they didn't want to name it the Imperial Games or the Trader Games or whatever. So they went to Earth and they said, okay, we're going to call it the Olympics. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you can't just co-opt our Olympics. But eventually they worked it out with all three uni- universes. So it's the Olympics. So she went to the Olympics and was a silver medalist. She oh. could have been a gold medalist, but she didn't want to, you know, take another four years off from being an officer. Yeah. You know, it was hard enough for her to make it anyway. And she didn't want to take that chance. Yep. So in this book, we see her kind of by preference running as her mode of transportation. Yeah. Yeah. She likes to run. She can think, you know, when you've done it all your life, you don't even think about it. So when she wants to think about something, she goes for a job, you know, or when she has to get from one place to another, she runs. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Catherine, what a, what a fun novel. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. All right. Once again, uh, the book is The Jigsaw Assassin, out now from uh, Bain Books in uh, trade paper uh, and in ebook. Uh, Catherine Asaro, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Can today. I say one more thing? Yeah, absolutely. I have a Patreon page if people want to help support me so I don't have to get a job as a waitress. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, it's at patreon.com slash Catherine Asaro. And you can subscribe for, you know, you can just subscribe to get stories and books and gossip and what I made for dinner. <laughs> and you can, it can be as low as $1 too. I think one of my patrons gives me $50 a month, which I very much appreciate. But a lot of them are one to $5. So what, you know, you can subscribe, you choose your subscription rate. Very cool. Catherine, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. That was fun.
And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. It wasn't as hard as Johnny had expected to forget his new troubles as the testing continued. The defenses he faced were devilishly tight, and it took every milligram of his concentration to handle his assigned missions. But his luck and skill held out, and he completed the solitaire exercises with nothing more serious than skinned hands and an impressive collection of bruises. And then he joined his roommates for the group tests. And there the disasters began. Facing Viljo again, working and fighting alongside him, brought out thoughts and feelings that even their danger couldn't suppress. And that distraction quickly manifested itself in reduced competence. Twice Johnny got himself into situations that only his computerized reflexes were able to get him out of. More often than that, a failure to do his part of the job wound up putting one of the others in unnecessary danger. Singh took a laser burn that had him operating under the sluggishness of heavy painkillers, while only quick action by Johnny and Deutsch pulled Nofke out of a pincer trap that would almost certainly have left him dead. A hundred times during those two days, Johnny considered having it out with Viljo, either verbally or physically, of letting the others know the kind of vermin they were working with and at least eliminating the lie he was being forced to live. But each time the opportunity arose, he choked his anger back down and said nothing. They were all just barely surviving, with one of their number under an emotional handicap. To multiply that burden and spread it around would be not only unfair but likely lethal as well. The other logical alternative occurred to him only once, and for an hour afterward he actually regretted the fact that his ethical training forbade him to simply shoot Viljo in the back. The missions went on, oblivious to Johnny's internal turmoil. Together the six of them broke into a fortified ten-story building, penetrated and destroyed a twenty-man garrison, disabled the booby traps around an underground bunker, and blew up its entrance and successfully rescued four remotes simulating civilian prisoners from a troughed jail. They camped overnight in a troughed-patrolled wasteland area, picked up the characteristics of an off-center group of civilians quickly enough and accurately enough to avoid being identified as strangers an hour afterwards, and led a group of resistance remotes on a simple mission that succeeded despite the often dangerous errors the remotes operators allowed their machines to make. They did it all. They did it well, and they lived through it. And as the transport flew them back toward Frere, Johnny decided it had been worth the risk. Whatever discipline Mendro chose to administer, he knew now that he indeed had what it took to be a cobra. Whether he was ever allowed to serve as one or not, that inner knowledge was something they could never take from him. When they reached Frere and found the MPs waiting, he was almost glad. Whatever Mendro had decided, apparently it was going to be over quickly. And it was. What he wasn't expecting 
was that the commander would invite an audience to watch. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Catherine Acero for sitting down with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.